0: This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to a variety of podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as interview segments, topical discussions, and more. We utilize Podcorn because it easily allows us to browse opportunities on the website and work with brands directly without any exclusivities. Access Podcorn to help support your podcast by signing up at podcorn.com forward slash podcasters.
1: Hi, this is Austin Wintry, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today, I talk to an actual icon of the game industry music scene, the composer Jesper Kidd. He's Danish, so that's Jesper, not Jesper, in case this is the first time you've ever heard it pronounced out loud. He is known for his outstanding contribution to the world of game music through the Assassin's Creed franchise, and of course also Hitman, Borderlands, the list is quite lengthy, And for this conversation, we basically did one long walk through memory lane, and he took me through childhood through to running his own game studio and shipping games on the Sega Genesis, which I didn't even know about prior to this conversation, and of course up through Assassin's Creed Valhalla just this last few months. It was a wonderful chat. He's a wonderful guy, and I hope you enjoy. Today is especially unique because uh, for the last year we've been doing these remotely and today it's the most egregiously hilarious to be doing remotely when I think you are just out of a good solid frisbee throws range away from me right now. So it feels especially uh, it feels especially sad to be recording this not face to face as we are in the hopefully tail end of the apocalypse. But as if that weren't enough, my illustrious guest today was also born on this day. Uh, and so we have the, of course, I guess by the time this is published, that will not hold true anymore. But we'll pretend that your birthday is simultaneously right now and at the exact moment of all future listeners. So I say welcome and happy birthday, Jesper Kid. Hey, Eve. Thank you. Great to be here. I, I'm, I'm glad to know that talking to me constitutes your ideal birthday plans.
2: <laughs> I, it, it's up there, man. It, it's way up there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how much uh, you regret that decision before too long. Um, how are you doing? How are, how are you holding up in the, the realm of the apocalypse in general? Do you have birthday plans? Give me a life update.
2: Things are going pretty well. Um, I've started writing a lot of music. Uh, again, I took a little bit of a, a break there after Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and it feels really great to be back uh, writing music. It's a surreal time, you know, we live in. I have, I have kids, and and, and to see what they're going through is probably the most heartbreaking thing. Uh, you know, as a composer, you're used to being isolated in a room kind of by yourself all day you know except when mm-hmm. you go and record soloist or or you know with an orchestra or choir uh, you do some traveling but the majority of time the vast majority is definitely spent sitting alone in a room <laughs> so for me personally you know I haven't had to adapt that much um, but to see the effect it has on, on my family is is, is really it's kind of
1: heartbreaking how, how old are your kids again I got a a 12 and a 15 year old. uh, So I assume they've been doing all remote school and, you know, zoom classes and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Remote school since March. And, you know, my kid was supposed to start high school. Well, he did start high school, but he's uh, doing high school in his room, you know, which.
1: (laughs) Yeah. that's, That's definitely not how it's supposed to be.
2: No. And, and, you know, me growing up in Denmark, uh, the only thing I really know about high school is what I've seen from the movies. And so, but I, do, <laughs> you know, but I do know that everything builds up to this moment, high school, right. It's supposed to be like this big buildup. And then he finally gets there. Right. My, my son. And, and it's like, okay, he's in his room.
1: <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah. You were expecting like in force awakens when Han Solo says it's all true. It's all true. You're expecting that the all, the all true is, you know, some combination of the breakfast club and clueless and, uh, and, uh, you know, innumerable other mythical high school movies. Does that mean that the Denmark high school experience is wildly different from that?
2: I would say so. Uh, so the school system is, is different. Um, we stay in the same with the same class throughout the first like nine or 10 years yeah so if you have the same class with kindergarten and you go all the way to tenth grade, um that's eleven years with the same people, and you don't uh change uh students when you go into different classes either. It's always those twenty people or so when i when I grew up, it was about twenty and uh so you spend like you know eleven years with those people uh, and there's a lot of the same teachers as well it goes through the whole school you know school years.
1: That's so it's, mind blowing. I, it I had no idea that that does that that must mean that that group of 20 are either lifelong friends or you are eager to never see each other again uh, by the time you finish. You know, in, in, in,
2: in hindsight, it's a very surreal way of, of doing things. And um, I, I do think that the, the way this, the system works over here, you, you come out of it a much more social creature. Uh, you know, there, there's this um, conception that Americans are very outgoing. You know, and and <laughs> it's something that we always experience in Europe when you meet Americans, they're not shy, they're always outgoing, they're always like very talkative and this. And and I actually think it could have something to do with the school system in that you're always socializing with new people, you're always in new classes, you're always changing. It seems like you're always changing school every two three years. I do think that has a lot to do with with um, you know with, with with that thing I mean I can't really explain it any other way no, that, I've I, never thought about that actually but it's an interesting point that's yeah
1: point. it I I can't it's hard for me to wrap my brain I guess as different as my childhood was would be equally difficult for you to imagine because uh, that they're so they're so polar opposites in that way does that mean that you like how big would the total school be in which this class of 20 is a part? You know, how, what's the, what's the kind of right. the next circle outward look like in terms of size?
2: So my school was about 1200 kids.
1: Okay. Well at least that, cause I was, I was trying to wrap my brain around what the scale would be because for example, the high school that I went to was 4,000 students Right. and the, you know, the, the class sizes were probably similar to what you're describing, but every 45 minutes, it's a total reshuffle. And so you end up exposed to hundreds of people in any given day. Yeah. Um, so the idea of being kind of sealed in with a group, it's, it's almost like these are your family for the next decade. I hope you like them. Yes. Uh, uh, it's quite the, <laughs> quite the, uh, it's quite the thing. Well, so then, um, i'm probably going to end up bouncing all around because there's just so much i want to get to your 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 career is is um truly illustrious but I, i'd like to kind of tiptoe towards it a bit um given what you just said which i i honestly had no idea of denmark is one of those uh countries that i'm 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 working towards as i check off the various destinations of the world that i've visited i've yet to i've yet to go there so i'm 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 largely in the dark, and I had no idea the school system works that way. How did emergent musical talent come come about? Like, is music a big part of that education for everybody growing up? And and, and when did it sort of take shape as a dominant force in your life?
2: I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a, it's a big part of it. You know, we had like music classes, I think once a week. Once we reached a certain uh, H, uh, you know, class, but, um, the way it happened to me, I, we, you know, there was a piano at my home and I liked, you know, sitting and playing on that piano and just, you know, messing around. And wherever we went to visit, I have a huge family. And so whenever we went to visit my grandparents or aunts and uncles and all that stuff, no matter where we went, there was always a piano. I don't know it was like the the rule of uh, you know of my family you have to have a piano or something because there there's one everywhere so you know you go to your grandparents for like two three weeks or something inside like out in the middle of nowhere and there's like fields of 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 grass and cows and stuff you're like oh there's a piano Hmm." so i just i just ended up spending a lot of time playing on the piano um and then i got a commodore 64 my brother and i um when we were like 13 years old and oh i can i can interject there that i did do some um some studies in um in school i think maybe I, it was like the the eighth or ninth grade or something where i studied like um guitar and, and classical composition on piano uh, you know trying to figure out how music was was made it was always on the si- side sidelines though
1: was anything propelling that like was this especially encouraged by your family or just your own curiosity
2: it was my own curiosity uh, and and it really did help me um, figure out the the piano and figure out how everything can be divided into chords and you know just just kind of a very kind of basic place to start um, but it definitely sparked my interest and and like once I got the commodore sixty four which is like the first uh game console video game I and mean, the first computer that actually has a analog sound chip inside and, and and so these scores were really um incredible back then i i remember getting into video games and video game music at the same time playing these games on the commodore 64 and hearing what these composers could do with this analog sound chip i just thought i have never heard anything like this before it, it absolutely fascinated me. Um, and that's really when I thought, wow, you can actually create a complete song here. You know, you have a sequencer, you can do a bass and you can do a melody, you can do an arrangement. you know, you can even do some percussion. I can create a, <clears throat> I can create a full track here. And that's when it just became completely uh, addicting, I guess to me. I had to do like a track every day. And from, from, I was, you know, about 13, I just wrote a track every day. And, and, and after the, the Commodore 64, it went to the Amiga, which is the next computer Commodore made. And that had, um, instead of having three, uh, sit channels, and by the way, the Commodore 64, that music is still live. That music is called sit music chip tune. Uh, you know, that's. That all came from the COVID of sixty four. That's where it was invented. Um, so that was the the world I was embraced in as a like a young teenager. Um, and then it went to the Amiga, which has four channels, not three, but they had four sample channels. So suddenly you could start sampling everything. And I would, you know, put on my favorite CDs, and I would try to like grab a snare drum sound that was played like. <laughs> completely alone, you know, so you could like yeah. ah, I can grab that snare drum and stuff because there was there was like nothing. We we didn't have any tools, you know, Yeah, of course, we, we were just trying to figure this out. This computer came out and nobody had any like kick ass music uh, programs for it or anything. Um, so so once that really started, um, a, a program which was the first tracker and a tracker is a special way of making music which is, is a place where you put the notes in with your keyboard and then it kind of scrolls the screen and you can you can see the notes hit where it hits in real time. Uh, so I became like a huge tracker musician uh, back then and did like hundreds of tracks uh, as well on, on the Amiga, um, you know, with, with all these samples. So I got a lot of experience with sampling and cutting up samples and, and creating new stuff uh, on my own, my own instruments and that kind of stuff. And that
1: all... Uh, you know it's has has stayed with me all, all these years do you have those recordings still does that music even exist in a way that you can actually hear it
2: i I'm ashamed to say it's on youtube
1: <laughs> really <laughs> oh man i know what i'm doing later today i'm just kidding
2: i i appreciate i appreciate that music um uh, and everything uh, it did but don't don't expect uh you know you gotta um you got you gotta listen to it for what it is. You know,
1: I I will listen to it with uh, absolutely sky high expectations. (laughs) And not only that, I was
2: just, I don't know, 15 trying to figure out the world. Right. So but what's interesting is I um, entered something called the European demo scene, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't Um, know what would separate the European from the, the US demo scene, but that that like if it has its own special quality. Uh, but uh, the the demo scene in general was obviously where a lot of folks kind of cut their teeth in right. that time, and and the European demo scene was
2: really like where most of the demos were made. Um, the American demo scene was was very small compared to Europe, um, and it, um, it it so I had all this music I was making, and I was introduced um, to. Uh, to some people and, and and some actually some of my friends were programmers and, and graphic artists, so we started making our own demos. The demo is basically like a five, eight minute uh, demonstration that shows like a music video. It shows what you can do. So if you're an artist, you're going to do some some great logos and 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 some beautiful pictures and and some nice design and the programmer will put all that together and then of course it, it needs to have music too so i started doing uh music for all these different demo groups um and and we we kind of uh, uh, rose in the, in the ranks you could say in the demo scene um and, and um we kind of got to the top uh with, with our uh we did a demo called Hot Wired, which is uh, considered a, a, a kind of a pioneering demo, um, and that's when we decided, okay, what are we going to do? We have all this this kind of talent. Uh, two different demo groups have gotten together, and now we have a, a group of super programmers, and we have a group of uh, with with me on music and and my friend Michael uh, uh, with, with with graphics. Uh, so we decided to start a game company. Uh, This was back when I was, uh, I don't know, 18 or 19 or something. Uh, And then we started making games. Um, So our first game got sold to Sega. Uh, It's called Subterranea. It was under Sega Genesis. Um, And so we moved from Copenhagen uh, to Boston. Now, in Copenhagen, it, it was awesome. We had gotten paid for our first game, and to us it was like, so much money, so we we got like this this huge apartment in the middle of, of Copenhagen in like three levels, and there was always like at least like <laughs> eighteen or twenty people in there, and <laughs> it was like a giant party, you know. Um, that's that's uh, that's what we left behind, and then we went to to Boston and started making more games. Uh, we released games on the Sega Saturn, um, like um, Scorcher, and, and Amok was part of that uh, as well. Um, at some point I also did some more Genesis scores. Um, were you I- doing anything
1: other than the music? Cause it sounds like you were this little squad and that you, as was often the case in those days, the composer is also the sound designer is also kind of a co-programmer to, to make the music actually work. And, you know, the right. days before middleware, how, how, how beyond the, the normal, um, just musical duties did you have, or were you, part of a little audio crew? Uh, That's a really good question, actually, Um,
2: because we did um, make our own music program for the Sega Genesis. Now, Sega had their own tools which could could play back samples in a really, really low bit rate. I think it was like 8-bit or something. So every time you would sample something, it would always be like... (laughs) It was just be like noise and then a remnant of what it's supposed to sound like. So we did the opposite. We said, we're going to make our own music program, no samples, because the Genesis is just crap at samples. And so, but it's very good at FM. So we were able to create a program that had six channels playing back FM quality in CD quality, 44 hertz. Uh, Beautiful. Uh, And so I used that program. um, and I don't know anything about programming, or uh, so. So I was just, uh, you know, it was a tracker program because that's the world we came from. Um, and so I used that program that that uh, that we did, and we only used that for our, for our own games. So it's really cool.
1: How how did you manage to escape being a programmer? Because that was that's such a sort of classic feature of com- of composers at that time when when. There just was so little by way of what we would call middleware now or or, or even just the tools themselves.
2: Right. So that's an, actually an interesting story. Uh, so on the Commodore 64, um, there were some programs that had been uh, officially released, like Electro Sound. I remember. It was one program my dad bought, and I was like, all right, I'm going to try this program because I was so fascinated with these Commodore 64 composers. That, yes, would do their own programming, like Martin Galway and Rob Hubbard and Tim Fallon and Ben Dalish and all these guys doing such incredible music, which these days are being performed by orchestras. <laughs> anyway, um, we'll, so... get, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll, 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 yeah. We're... <laughs> so, what was cool was once I entered the demo scene, I entered the demo scene on a Commodore 64. And they would send me new. Di- so so it's basically I signed off for some mail order in a newspaper. And um so they would start sending me discs of stuff. And lo and behold, on one of the discs was a new music program called, called Sound Monitor, which is actually a program that I found out later, Chris Schulzbeck made. And it was a program that okay. was no, and it was a um it's it was a program that was released in a German. Uh, computer magazine that you would type in yourself. Do you remember those?
1: Yeah. 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 Well, it's just slightly before my time, but I actually, I was still, I was, I was kind of a precocious nerd. And so I was, I was always looking, uh, you know, I always had a bunch of different magazines as I just tried to vacuum up everything. And that is absolutely one of those phenomena that, that I, 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 that was sort of just ending basically as I as I became aware in the world, um, because, um, yeah, that's a legacy of a, of a, of a, of a different era completely. Right. Imagine that now, you know, it's like a phone book, uh, the sheer amount of code. Yeah
2: it's crazy you would get a i mean i i was on the tail end of that too i think i tried to do one you know they would give you you would buy a magazine and they would have like 20 pages of, of of just data you would have to program just like it was written right and it was like basic or something like that on the commodore 64 and you would like program it in and by the end of the day, you would have like a little game where you could like move a thing around and there was a thing coming at you when that was it. <laughs> After spending like, I don't know, six hours or more programming this in. So it truly was a different era. But anyway, so so Sound Monitor was one of those programs. So when I got that program, that was the first program I saw that could actually do music that sounded really good. So I got completely addicted to that music program. And had I not entered the demo scene, I would have not been sent this program, which came from the underground. You huh. couldn't buy this program in the store, you know, but it was spread through the demo scene like all the demos are. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, my path has very much been dominated by the demo scene, especially um, how I got my beginning.
1: You know? you know, is there is there any current incarnation of that scene? You know, it, I mean, I feel like the, the indie game world has little localized pockets that are probably similar in flavor, but is there anything today that's sort of comparable to what it was then? I can't think of anything.
2: Well, the demo scene is still alive, and people are still programming things on the Commodore 64 and Amiga, Um, but these are the same people for the most part. Actually, I'm not sure, but I know there's a lot of people from back then that are still having fun programming on these machines and sending out demos to the world um and it's 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 kind of mind-boggling to think about and and a lot of companies actually came out of the demo scene companies like uh dice or crytek and remedy and io interactive and i mean the list goes on these are all people these these companies were founded by some of the strongest people from the demo scene
1: yeah that that doesn't surprise me it's it's um you know, the bedroom coders of that era, uh, it's kind of, I guess the closest thing would be um, like game jams today where where uh, every now and again there's a big hit game that it turns out one year before was hatched up in some weekend in, in some person's apartment as part of a game jam. And then they realized, oh, I think there's actually something here. Right. But, and uh,
2: that that's an interesting point you make there, because that is very much um, the perspective of, I would say, the difference between what we did in the European demo scene and, and, and how things work, uh, especially in America, because in America, things are more about, you know, creating a product that can be successful and that can turn uh, a profit. And I mean, that makes complete sense. I'm totally behind that but for some reason the european demo scene we were never about to trying to create profit it was always just about trying to outdo each other you know with with routines and programming tricks and music and graphics and and that was what drove us to outdo each other oh i can do something better oh he's got like this and that many uh you know uh uh, polygons on the screen I can do twice as many oh yeah okay and so somebody goes and programs their own 3d routine to show that they can do twice as many and then somebody's like oh yeah, I got an idea how we can do more yeah you know, so that was like the drive and it just kept this demo scene alive of course you would have demo competitions at these big demo parties or hacker parties or whatever you call them where like thousands of people will get together and you know, you would present these demos there that debuted at these places and there was like a first prize and a second and third prize. Um, I'm picturing and was, those parties.
1: Know. I'm imagining those parties as like the uh, the opening rave scene in the movie. Oh, right. uh, the, di- the
2: difference between uh, the opening rave scenes, which I very much uh, was part of too, is that the smell. Can I just tell you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I, I, I can only imagine... Uh, that's, you know, because
2: uh, the, these parties would be held at like schools, or and then everybody would just take over the school over the weekend, and each like classroom would be a different demo group, you know, and they would all sit in there and try to finish their demo. Uh, it, it's it's really uh, it's really uh, an unusual kind of phenomenon. Do
1: you have nostalgia for that? period do you ever find yourself thinking that sounds i wish i could do that today or i wish there was some component of that in my life or do you feel like not that chapter is closed and and i i'm grateful to it but i'm happily past it
2: i mean that that chapter is definitely closed but um it was a very fun period of my life and and walking around like a 16 year old and signing people's t-shirts you know it's totally surreal uh and and the amount of um um the, the amount of people that, that got to know who you are, you know, I mean, they had like charge of charts and stuff like the official Euro charge, who is the best musician this month, you know? I mean, there was so much, um, going on in that scene. It was, was, there was such a collective of so many people. Um, it was a really wonderful place for sure. And and I I met a lot of great people. Um, It's funny that insane and talented people, you know,
1: undoubtedly, Uh, I'm sure they were saying the same about you. And I think um, it's funny to me that you would call out the idea of signing t shirts as a as a novelty when when I can attest to the fact having shared uh, concerts and stages with you in a few different countries. Now I've seen you be solicited for autographs quite a few times. uh, And I think that that will only continue to increase in in frequency. So it sounds like that was all really mostly just a kind of a a portent of what was to come uh, and they, not, not so much a, uh, an aberration.
2: You too, man. People are, are definitely asking plenty of autographs over there as well for you.
1: <laughs> well, I think they just, because oh, they, sure. they see me as the guy standing next to you and uh, the, <laughs> the two, the two uh, atypically tall people, although I think you're several inches taller than I am. And I, I, that's not so common that I find people that I think, damn, I actually have to kind of tilt here.
2: Well, that's the thing. If you if you go when you go to Denmark, you know uh, people are pretty tall there, um, women and men, everyone actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's all the it's all those Viking genes. And uh, well, so let's uh, let's let's move forward. And you mentioned that you came to Boston, and obviously you were starting to get uh, your foot on the ground in the game industry pretty early. Was there ever any? Uh, parallel interest in the because I know I know you've done some television and some film and things like that but was that part of your interest then or were you just I'm all about games
2: I'm all about games um, that was my philosophy back then it is true that <clears throat> that I very much love working on film and TV now but I love working on all three games has to be in there as well for me um, but in the beginning it was it was You know, we were a game company. I was part owner of a game company. That was like what we did, you know. And the games we first did on the Sega Genesis were also doing things that people on the Sega Genesis had never done before. We even had full motion video running on the Genesis. If you play Red Zone, it it has full motion video in it. Nobody had done that before. Um, That's kind of the legacy of of coming out of the demo scene. You want to keep, like, doing things that are new or fresh or something. Like, when Hitman 1 came out, they had ragdoll physics, which I believe was the first time that had been done as well. So um, we were totally caught up in that whole, you know, when you start up Redstone, there's, like, a huge list that comes up, like, of all the programming tricks we put in the game, you know, and it's just like, boom, look at all this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so then what what led to the eventual... Migration West and uh, the the kind of pivoting to freelance composer because it sounds like you obviously had a really good uh, and 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 uh, powerfully creative team there. So something had surely disrupted that or changed your priorities. When did that happen?
2: So after we did the second Sega Genesis game, uh, we started working on. Um, uh, we started working on thirty two x and Sega Saturn. and so we were involved in early stages of a of a Batman game. and so we were moved uh, you know we had to be on the on the west coast for that. Um, so that's when we moved out to uh, to LA and started working on that. Um, that didn't work out, so we uh, started working on two other games for the uh, Sega Saturn, uh, which was a mock and Scorcher. I, I did some music for Sega for a game called Adventures of Batman and Robin. Uh, which is this huge techno rave? It's like my—I uh, don't know—my homage to the to the rave scene in a Batman game.
1: <laughs> I can't believe that that is one. I have no—I I have absolutely—I—I I have no contact with that game. Somehow, uh, that uh, that that sounds like something else that I need. You're, you're basically giving me a shopping list of my back catalog. Jesper uh, music that I'm desperate to hear.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's something else. I couldn't believe uh, they actually wanted me to go as far as I could with this music. But um, it's a very kind of Gunstar Heroes, like shooter type of game where everything is completely chaotic all the time. So it fitted very well. It's thought, hey, techno rave, let's do it.
1: Well, so then what led to eventually uh, going freelance? When did that pivot happen?
2: Yeah. So we were, we were done with LA. Uh, we wanted to go back to New York. That's where we always wanted to be.
1: Um,
2: and so we moved back, we moved to New York. Uh, this was in 97, end of 96 kind of thing. And, um, the, the company we were working with who, uh, helped publish our games. They were kind of like a co-publisher before it went to Sega. Um, they didn't get paid they got and so they got in a lawsuit and yeah three years later they did win the lawsuit and they did get paid but that three years later everybody had moved on so when they didn't get paid uh all my friends went back um back home to denmark um i stayed uh one of my other friends a mathematician stayed as well um but uh the the you know all the programmers and graphics and all that stuff—they um, went back to Denmark and started IO Interactive.
1: Ah, um, well, that's a nice—that's a nice uh, preview of uh, uh, where this, uh, you know, conversation uh, will be going shortly. But uh, so, um, what made you feel differently than the rest of them? You know, knowing that you had all come over to the U.S. together, migrated different coasts together. Why did you sort of you and your mathematician, what made what made you different or what made you feel strongly enough about staying that that's so in opposition to the rest?
2: Well, I really uh, love New uh, New York. I love uh, America. It's not to say that my friends didn't love it over here, but I, I was really not ready to move home. And I also was not ready to be part of Um, A company where I um, could kind of uh, guess that I would be working on um, you know on on all sides of the audio I wanted to do the music and I wanted to do music for more than like one game every two years or three years or however long it takes to make a game you know I felt I had much more music in me than that Um, so that's when I decided I'm gonna stay in New York City uh and try to enter the game industry on my own uh, and, and and try to get as many uh, you know try to get some freelance work and see how that goes and some of the first uh games i worked on of course it was io's first game hitman codename 47 it was also uh mdk2 which is a uh, game from bioware um, and as well, I, I, I worked with shiny entertainment, uh, interplay, uh, a game called uh, Messiah. So those three games, uh, came out, uh, and suddenly I was kind of a, a, a person who had some, some music in some, some pretty big games.
1: I had no idea you worked on MDK. Um, that's the second, the second one. Well, yeah, sure. That, that franchise, I should say, um, that's so funny. I I that that's one of those that has come up in conversation recently, uh, sort of randomly, and I I never it, it occurs to me. I didn't even bother to check to see who had scored it, um, and it's certainly uh, worth I guess turning our attention to to IO now. Um, what w- walk us through just that initial. Uh, the initial conversations and the initial sort of process, and what was your impression of it? And because it, it's worth framing that, one of maybe the most recent time we saw each other was in Poland when there was a whole concert dedicated to your music with Hitman prominently featured. So here we are, you know, what ten, how many years later, fifteen years later, or something like that, and the music from that game is still of such importance to people that they're literally filling auditoriums uh, for people to come here it be played so w- i'm always curious about what's the initial impression on on the the behalf of the creators who are often not quite aware that they're about to make something that's essentially a classic in the making
2: right so um hitman
1: 2 by the is- way i'm glad that you have I, I, I worded all of that so poorly that I'm really glad <laughs> that you have any idea what I'm asking. I think I know what
2: you're getting at. And it's actually a, an interesting uh, story because Hitman 2, uh, I did not you know, come up with the idea of an orchestral score for that game. That came from the CEO of IO Interactive, Janus Flosser. And he used to be involved with the um, symphonic scene in Hungary. He's Hungarian. And so he came to me and he's like, Jesper, for the second hitman, we're doing the Budapest Symphony Orchestra and the Hungarian Radio Choir. <laughs> and, you know, mind you, up up until that point, I, I was still like writing like rave music for games and electronic
1: music for games. Uh, was that your first time, uh, period, dabbling with orchestral palette? It was. I had no idea
2: what I was getting into. I did not know anything about orchestral music. Um, it had just not been on my radar. I had been very focused on evolving my own instruments and my sampling and and electronic music and and just how do I keep making that better? That was uh, that was my world. If you lit- listen to M.D.K. too, I need I mean that's an insane rave soundtrack that I wrote. Uh, and it has some orchestral music in it from from another composer, and so we blended our styles together. Uh, but some of the tracks are pure rave music. I mean, the three or three is screaming in that one. Um, so it, it, I just dove into that world and um, just completely lost myself for a couple of years in that world, and came out with uh, you know the, the soundtrack for Hitman two, um, and. I, you know, it, it was really surreal. You go to, you know, Hungary, and there is like eighty-nine people in the orchestra, and, and and all these people in the recording booth, and 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 then we do the choir with sixty people. I, I was so overwhelmed, and at the same time, the Danish National Radio was there, you know, filming, and and it was it was just like, what happened? Um, <laughs> but I was completely off-struck and 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 that's uh when my um i would say it it definitely changed me and i was open to that world of symphonic writing and i knew right away i want to do more of this kind of music and i want to do more uh symphonic music i had completely um opened my 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 head up to all this stuff
1: how did you even figure out how to get into it because you know For those unaware, just the sheer process of preparing scores and parts and, you know, the sheet music and the preparing for the sessions and recording and pro tools and and, uh, like all the prep work that goes in. If you don't, if you haven't done it before, you, you don't even know all the steps that are, that are needed. And and so how, how did you, if that was so novel to you, did you turn to somebody to, to kind of. Uh, mentor through the product or hire a producer or something? Because I just can't even imagine how steep a hill that would feel on the first time without some kind of having been an assistant or something before that. So how, how did you even tackle it? Yeah.
2: So in New York City, I had a, I had a good friend, Pierre Foldis, and uh, I had another good friend, um, June Michumachi, And so June was all about sound design and electronic music. Pierre was a uh, French. He is a French uh, film composer, uh, and he was all about the orchestra. And then there was, uh, you know, me kind of in the middle. And when I started working on Hitman Two, um, Pierre became the orchestra orchestrator uh, on that project, and he also, uh, you know, helped um, pe- you know prepare all the scores and all this stuff. And so he taught me the, 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 meaning of, of what I was getting myself into.
1: Uh, so yeah. Do you, any, sometimes when people kind of dip their toes into the world of the orchestra in particular, the, the kind of, uh, novelty of it sometimes kind of breeds strange choices. Do you, cause now obviously you've, you've, you know, I've worked with orchestra a a bunch of times since then. Is that something that you look back and and hear that music and think, you know, what, what bizarre choices I was, I I definitely feel that looking back at my own, I I, I feel like it goes back and forth between, wow, that was a very amateur move to like, that's a weird kind of interesting choice that I clearly made because I just didn't know any better. It, It wasn't being clever or, you know, insightful. I just had no clue that it would be weird to voice things that way or whatnot. Do you have any relationship with it? like that?
2: I, I mean, I try not to be too hard on it, but I think I was lucky in a sense that Hitman Two was a uh, a game where agent forty seven is a world traveler. So we go to to russia, Iran, uh, India of uh, uh, Sicily i mean we're all over the place and they wanted the music to reflect the locations and there's also some themes 47 makes the decision is of course the theme uh, for for, for uh, you know Mr 47 uh, but i could very much tap into the the whole um, idea of of a world traveler and, and and being inspired by the music styles for all these different areas and that definitely helped me uh, you know figure out how to write the score and, and that also coming out of the the demo scene, have written hundreds and hundreds of tracks. I tried to do anything I could think of and write any kind of music I could think of. So I had already written and uh, researched a lot of these music styles already, uh, just from sheer interest.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, still, how funny to think that it's, you know, just like that you getting rolling then, which surely was kind of a turning point as a freelance composer I mean hitman was such a big deal um, 20, 20 odd years ago um, and and it's and 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 those games are still a big deal. I mean it's literally there's a brand new one out in the last few weeks and right. uh, it, it, that it has it has remained such a a big part of the the gaming uh, culture. And the the diet of gamers—it's just always endlessly interesting to me when, when things um, they kind of latch on. I mean, Assassin's Creed is no is no different uh, in that regard, almost as long. Uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, the um, the uh, there was something I was going to to ask you. Oh, it was. I guess I guess I'm just not done unpacking this idea of the relationship with older music because it, it's it's one of those that. You, you obviously also have this in the form of Ezio's family where it's a good quote problem to have when something follows you around forever uh, right. because people tend to love it. But I, I find that it is such a common thing amongst composers that we, we feel, you know, a kind of m- mixed relationship, I guess, with these, with these pieces. Cause you think, you know, if I had, if I'd had any knowledge that this would, be something that gets so much notice. I might have approached it differently for better or worse. And because I just can't stop thinking about the fact that we were sitting there in Poland, listening to this music that was, you know, a couple of, a couple of decades old and surely not written, imagining that that would ever be happening all those years later.
2: Right. I mean, I, I have scores that follow me around for sure. Like Freedom Fighters is another one. You know, I, I hear quite often from people, "Oh,
1: Freedom Fighters, that's the one." You know, and um, that's almost as old I, too. Wasn't that game like 2002 or something like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, 2003, I think. Yeah, but the you know the fact that it's a live f- for Freedom Fighters, the fact that it's a live choir mixed with um, electronics and beats, you know, when I hear that, I know that my beat production these days are of course better but i hear something different when i listen to it you know and i i just kind of hear like a raw kind of a energy coming out from it and it's clearly beats made with drum machines whereas today i would use a lot of uh, additional processing and stuff um but but it has it's it has it's kind of a in my head you know i'm at peace with it and and i look at it like it has its its sound and it's it's charm too Uh, and uh i just Think about, I, I, I went for it as far as being uh, creativity and trying to mix unusual, you know, aspects. I mean, you should see having this, tr- you know, traditionally trained classical choir singing on top of these like insane <laughs> DJ beats, right? And this was back in 2003, perhaps it's more common to mix things together now, but this was clearly, I, I was like, this is awesome, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just to see people's reaction um so 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 yeah that's kind of how i'm at, at at peace with it you you know it's a good thing to 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 have that perspective because it means that i keep trying to improve myself and if i look back and I'm, uh, i i would have done things differently well that means i'm still um you know trying to you know get better as a composer so that's how that's how you should feel uh, if, if you're always trying to improve
1: yourself of course absolutely have you ever gone back and li- like freedom force is actually a pretty good example or freedom fighters i mean have you ever gone back especially recently and heard some of that older stuff and thought you know i should i should dust off some of that old gear i should see if i could recreate that particular sound because that that was good and that was that's more inspiring to me than you know some omnisphere patch that kind of thing like do you ever find yourself trying to Del- Delve back into those older wells
2: and um, uh, you know but freedom fire doesn't know for sh- for sure um, it, it, it's a, like a timepiece for me you know it just sits there and, and, and it has a little bit of that sound that was happening back then um, but I don't know I mean I like to you know as much as I can create my own instruments it's not that I don't you know that I do it always. Sometimes you 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 end up using patches from here or there, but and and so I, I feel very much that those sounds are connected to to freedom fighters, and so pulling those out and reusing them again, I, I don't know that yeah. doesn't that doesn't feel right.
1: <laughs> no, I, I I I get that. I, to me, I, that would be like uh, reusing a melody uh, uh, that because you know because you like how it sounds, but it it really it really belongs to the thing that it was originally conceived for and and so yeah it would be it would be be
2: and you know what what blows me away is like when you think about how you know fans of this music have probably heard this music more than we ever heard it making it you know and so they will probably pick up on things if we try to do something like that and me might not we might not even ah you know it's just a sound i used before but like Imagine, you know, I mean, if 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 it was like one of Vangelis's albums or some, you know, has his early work or something. I mean, I would have like, yeah, any little thing, I would be like, yeah, I've heard that album five hundred times.
1: Don't don't mess with that, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 true. Uh, well, so then it was only a few years after that then uh, that you had this uh, w- wonderful coming together with Ubisoft, which has cast a very long shadow. Uh, for for all of us <laughs> fellow composers um why don't you uh, you know give, give just tell us tell the story how did how did it go how did uh, you connect with them what what was your t- what was your impression on on the ac you know in those early days and and you know t- take take me on an adventure here okay
2: uh so i later found out that uh, Patrice Dizellet was a fan of uh, Hitman and um, you know Hitman Contracts, Hitman Blood Money, uh, these these games. Um, so um, that could have been why he was interested in working with me. Um, so when Ubisoft showed me what they were attempting to do, it was they had concept art and they I didn't see anything running yet. And and I remember meeting at E3 um at a hotel room and uh jay raymond and and, Pat- and patrice was, was showing me what they were intending to do and i just i couldn't i couldn't believe it i was like this is the most ambitious thing i have ever seen there was no uh, you know 3d open world platformer back then i think gta 3 had just re- re- you know revolutionized the industry by by creating an open online world taking gta 2 and put in a 3d it was totally new um and and so assassin's creed doing this with much more uh detail you you felt much closer to the environment you could You could climb anything you could, they were like, yeah, you see those mountains, you see that stuff all the way over there on this concept art? Yeah. You can go there and you can climb that. And I'm like, yeah, really? I mean, this is insane. You know, it's so Um, funny.
1: I I can only imagine what it was like showing them kind of tease what they're planning. And as much as all of that was truly as impressive, I mean, we forget, especially now with, you know, a dozen more of them since then, uh, it, it, it's easy to kind of take some of those advances for granted. But I will never forget for me the thing that blew my mind was the cloth simulation on his clothes. As oh, you, the
2: animation. Yeah. It, the it animation was, is so good.
1: It was and it was truly amazing. I really it was the first time I remember playing a game where I thought that looks like a real piece of clothing. I mean it, it yeah. moves with the with his running and with his climbing in a way that that uh at the time it just it it absolutely Shattered me. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I
2: agree. I, the animation in those games were, were truly groundbreaking
1: uh,
2: It's unbelievable what they were able to achieve um, But yeah, I, th- I you know Assassin's Creed one felt like the first true next-generation game to me I was like wow, we just we didn't take a step we took like a leap you know, yeah, this is insane. I don't know if we had, have we had another leap since? I mean, everything is of course better, but that was a leap that was just like, whoa.
1: <laughs> you know. Yeah, it would be hard to think off the top of my head what I might liken it to. Um, you know, there, there are. It seems like the leaps tend to now be. In less all-encompassing ways, you know, where the game just across 50 different dimensions is taking this leap, but it's more that it's leaping in one particular category. Like the first game, for whatever reason, that jumped to mind was No Man's Sky, where the sheer scope of what open world can mean took this just bafflingly gigantic leap forward. Um, But, you know, it's not like 30 other things about that game are also... Taking the leap in the in the same manner, so I don't know. I'm not sure. That's it's a good, it's a good way to uh, to uh, frame the original AC and 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 also just uh, it's it's cool. It's heartening to think that you were looking at the game and could see it for what it was. You know that 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 it was clear from the beginning the level of their ambition and that none of this was you know as it were by accident which of course it never could be but you know what i mean sometimes people kind of stumble into a hit and sometimes they set their eyes for some moon-shaped prize in the sky and actually manage to land on it and not just go right. down in a blaze of glory
2: i was so happy uh, you know for for ubisoft that ac1 came out as great as it did i mean it must have been a huge effort for them to just take and step up the whole industry that much, you know? I mean, it, that doesn't just uh, me being, you know, I used to be a part owner owner of a game company. I know what it takes to make these kind of, uh, I mean, this must've just been an insane amount of faith. And, 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 and uh, I, I just, I love when, when the industry takes chances like this and, um, and, and, and wins, you know, You, you know, it, it's just, uh, it, it's awesome. Was there any,
1: well, actually, let me, let me frame, that. let me phrase this differently. How, how, what were the nature of the initial conversations about music? Did they have a specific kind of aesthetic in mind? You know, what did they, what did they tell you that led to the, the first, you know, sketches and, and whatnot that you were doing?
2: Yeah. So Assassin's Creed one has, um, you know, takes place in the Middle East and it has a, um, a Christian side to it with the, 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 the city, the area of Acre. Um, it has uh, Damascus, which is, a, you know, obviously a, a Muslim a populated uh, city uh, with more Middle Eastern influenced music. And then it has uh, Jerusalem, which takes uh, both of those cities and puts it into a melting pot to create a third kind of sound. So that was the first thing we we had to figure out. Um, the 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 three words I got from the team to work with uh, was, um, let's see, it was war. Uh, it was strategy. I mean, obviously, the strategy of the Third Crusade. Um, and it was, and here's my favorite, mysticism. Uh, and I was like, mysticism? Holy moly, that really became something I, I, I felt like... Um, you know, because those are the two words. Of course there's war, you know, yeah, yeah. and of course everything is, is, you know, the time period. It had to be tragic because we have to, we're playing a historical game, so that was very cool to, to be able to tap into that. Not a lot of people were doing it back then, these historical games. Uh, but mysticism opened up a, a world for me where I thought, man, if we can get something going and within this mysticism and um, and within this, this 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 more serious tragicness, there's a, a really interesting world there to explore that doesn't get explored every day.
1: Um, how and, much did they? Yeah. How much did they walk you through? Because the, one of the great, the great twist and surprise of that game is that Assassin's Creed is actually a kind of futuristic sci-fi. Right. Uh, so. How much did they did that factor into the uh, equation in terms of, uh, you know, is that did you want to have kind of breadcrumbs in the score to that? Did did you how much did they make you aware that that was where this was all headed? You know, it's it's astonishing to, to hear some of the stories where a composer will be working in kind of a blind, like working in the dark, not really fully aware of all the different details, or in some cases, those details are still being Figured out, and they don't even they don't even know what to tell them yet. Depending on how early you're involved, like just because that right. that's such a big part of it. I'm just curious to know what you knew and when, and how it influenced everything.
2: I mean, they did send me a lot of videos, so I did get to see uh, the game in motion. It was just the very beginning was 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 more concept art stages, but so so I did get a pretty good look at the game. But um, it's true, the game was changing as it was being made because it, as, as a brand new game and, and such an innovative game, you know, people didn't really know, it, it was still being shaped. Um, and as far as the animus, the team very much wanted to remind the player that you were playing in a simulation. So we were thinking a lot about how to, um, how do we remind the game player of that? And so that that was another big effort on Assassin's Creed 1, trying to figure out that side of it. And uh, yeah, that's where the the whole mixing electronics with uh, live performances and also taking live performances and, uh, you know, instruments we record and, you know, twisting them a bit and and making things sound a a bit off. Uh, We recorded with a a choir uh, in uh, Seattle uh, for Assassin's Creed 1. Um, and and you know then putting it all all together in the end and also the music had to be quite interactive There is moments where you're eavesdropping So I did like for example a lot of eavesdropping music where you're just like sitting on a bench and mm-hmm. you're just like oh Anything going on around here and then you see something suspicious. You're like you get up you start following somebody Oh, okay follow music, you know, and then oh you're getting into some kind of light combat with this guy. Oh, you're running away oh, Okay, we have something there too. Um, there were so many things we were figuring out as far as this gameplay that was just, I mean, did you have any games about eavesdropping, you know, and following, it just wasn't a big thing back then. But when, now when you play Assassin's Creed, it's like, of course you can follow someone. This is always part of the, of the gameplay, right? Uh, yeah. But, yeah.
1: It was, yeah. Very, very incredibly memorable mechanics disappearing in, anonymously into a crowd in order to hide from the, the guards chasing you and all that kind of stuff. And, Right. Never mind how insanely memorable the whole leap of faith thing. Uh, was. I mean, yeah, it's just it's just loaded top to bottom. And but you bring up you bring up a good a good thread that I'd love to to tease at, which is the notion of interactive music. Because I remember this is something we you and I have talked about before uh, in the context of Borderlands and and how particularly uh, sort of densely designed their interactive system is. Um, and and I, I wanted to, I realized I didn't actually ask you about this in the context of these older games, and in particularly when you were running your own company, how big was interactive music as part of the scope of your work versus, you know, here's music, so-called normal music that we're putting in the game?
2: On the Sega Genesis, there was no interactive music. <clears throat> it was like the level is playing out. We have music for this level. You know, that that's basically it um on uh, hitman one is the first time i was involved with interactive music um that was a absolute nightmare it was a music oh. program from microsoft called direct music the very first you know version of this program and it it looks like a database program i mean it is not like the creative sequences Cubase logic, you know, we've worked with now, which is great for creativity and gets your ideas out instantly It was like a database program. So I was like there is no way in hell I'm gonna be writing music with this thing. It is so uninspiring I had to make all the music in the studio and then try to conform it into that program And so of course once it's in that program you can do music changes on the fly without any kind of loading or any kind of pause and it goes on the beat and it's perfect so the interactiveness of hitman 1 is actually quite good Uh, you know it's it's a it's an older game so obviously it's a bit limited um but um compared to to hitman 2 i don't believe we did anything like as interactive of that i think we had kind of had enough with with hitman 1 i mean we were doing beautiful orchestral performances so I, I don't know putting those into little you know short passages to do stuff interactively it didn't really um, enter our minds we were trying to create these 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 big beautiful uh, set pieces
1: you know yeah of course and how about as as the time has gone by what what how would you kind of summarize your relationship to interactive music you know some composers like i spoke uh, Few months ago, on here with um, the French composer Olivier de Riviere, who you know, that's that he, he and I have in common that it's kind of our obsession, um, but then there's plenty of others uh, for whom it is an interesting subject, but it's not their primary driver, and they certainly manage to write really great scores without that being a priority for them. How, how do you kind of figure in that spectrum just from a personal passion or curiosity perspective?
2: Well, I think my passion there depends on the amount of um, involvement I can have on the music system. You know what I mean? Like, if you are creating a game and we need something really innovative and really interactive, and I can come up with ideas of how to present the music and how we can make this like you turn this key and then this thing starts and then if you do this, the reverb does this, you know, when you can do really interesting things and you have programmers that are assigned to help you out with this stuff and there's a priority on it, then I'm very interested in it. I implemented the music for freedom fighters and uh, hitman 2, hitman blood money very, very closely with IO interactive as close as basically I came up with, I told them what my ideas were for, for the music. And for the most part, it was all implemented that way. You know, don't play the music here. Don't play it that many times. Only play a little bit over here and do this and that. So, so I very much have an interest in that uh, interest in that. But, um, but I do I do see the other side as well when you were presented with a music system and you're like, this is our music system. This is what it does. And we need you to conform your music to work on that. And sometimes you're like, well, you know, I like to write uh, if we're exploring right now I like to write like two three minutes music worth of exploring but if you want the music system to uh, indicate that now you're walking now you're sitting now you saw something up there now you you know if it becomes that then it can become kind of tedious because that's like the system starts to take over the musicality of it and yes perhaps it becomes a really fluent experience but I feel the magic is kind of disappearing. You know, it's, that, it's the viewpoint I have on film music. Like I am of the, the viewpoint that I, me, film music should be noticed. When I watched Blade Runner, how can anybody watch that movie and say, I didn't notice the music? Oh, you know, yeah. It's impossible. It, it, it's such a big part of the world. It, it's world building with the music, right? It creates this huge, vast, believable world other times you're like yeah you didn't notice the music in the film and, and and some people say hey you know if you don't notice it that means it's perfect and so i i don't know i i can see both you know I, I understand if you have a big accent sequence you don't want the music to get in the way you know but i very much think <clears throat> music is there if we can create something that's noticed um, uh it, it's it's if it's done carefully in the right way it's only going to deepen the experience
1: more, you know? Yeah, obviously that's one of those questions that comes down to the specifics of the uh, filmmaker or the the game designer. You know, I think of, like you mentioned, an action sequence and my mind immediately went to Inception where, you know, Nolan practically pulls the sound, all the non-score gets pulled out so that it's basically just visuals and music in even in the midst of some of these huge action sequences and then yeah. you have the extreme opposite of a classic like bullet where the the famous iconic car chase has no score at all like let's right. just listen to the engine of the you know the engine sounds that sort of thing
2: so i mean i've wor- i've worked with the, with directors who is like yeah here's some reference music and it's like a film and all the soundtrack is just basically like a drone sound it's like you know i like that kind of stuff and you're like hmm (laughs) like i don't
1: know man yeah i i I know exactly what you mean every now and again a score like that is is sort of stealthily brilliant like genuinely catches you by surprise and you go wow i actually can't imagine it any other way but more often than not it it seems to be coming from a fear to commit hard to a choice uh and and um so, and it does.
2: It does fit that movie that he showed me. But what makes him think it fits his movie? And and uh, and it's like I I totally don't think it does. You know.
1: Um, yeah.
2: So absolutely. and it, anyway. Yeah. Well,
1: so uh, going back to AC, then um, knowing, I, I guess I'm also curious, just given how iconic it turned out to be, very much including its music. Did you go through a bunch of different? Uh, aesthetics and styles like you were outlining the way the different cities and their cultural makeup influenced the score. But from the onset, you know, there's nothing period about that score. It's very contemporary and it's unapologetically. So it's, it's not, you know, rave beats and things like that, but it, you would not hear that and say, Oh, this feels like it's, you know, like, uh, archeologically, derived from what we know of crusade era Jerusalem. I mean, it, it's a modern piece of, of music and presumably the animus is used to kind of justify that. But I'm just curious how much of an exploration that was because in hindsight, as the years have gone on, it it feels increasingly like a bold choice. At the time, it just felt natural and I didn't question it. And as time has gone by, I've, I've really come to appreciate that you really, you all, you at the spear point, but collectively the team, really took a chance on that. Right. I mean, I think it helps that you have pieces
2: of music like city of Jerusalem or uh, flight through Jerusalem, which, which, which uh, what I was attempting to, to capture with that music was the, you know, the, 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 the tragic, but also the spirituality of the period. Like people, it's not that people aren't spiritual now. I mean, but back then people were just like really spiritual, right? It was a huge part of their life. Uh, and the church was everything, um, but I, I think capturing that spirituality in the in the music immediately resonated with the game and the team. And when you are running across rooftops, there is some music that I mean, it's not rave music, but it definitely throws on futuristic beats and gets you know more and more intense on the soundtrack. That's the cue. Uh, Access the animus. It's like a 10-minute cue full of beats, right? Okay. And that's what Patrice really. He was like, we need something very modern for this sequence, and I was I was kind of thrilled because uh, it's it goes against what you're watching so much, and and I love that kind of stuff where you're counteracting with what's going on, you know, uh, and and so yeah, especially when you're running across rooftops. That's where the team's feeling was that. The animus is being pushed to the limit. And you can even see the screen starting to tear a little bit and getting like noise thrown in. And, and the music is suddenly this like really, uh, you know, kind of atmospheric techno music. Um, that was very much uh, the, the, the what they
1: wanted, but also the freedom I got to, to really push things. Was there ever a period where you thought, I'm not sure if this is going to work. <laughs> this is just too, this is too strange for, for a, for a period game. Like, did, was there ever any doubt or did it just seem, it just seemed right?
2: Yeah. I remember we recorded some, uh, some, uh, so, so I recorded some, um, a, a lot of ethnic instruments and we had this, this professor of ethnic music and we were in a session with him and, and and so, we did some really like realistic uh, folk music kind of uh, performances with with the the rhythms and all the different flutes and everything. And I remember um, putting like this in you know really intense sound design, very like evil stuff on top, and just like having that play. I don't know if we got to use that, but that was definitely what like two two totally different cues ideas and different, uh, it even have like polyrhythms going on. You know, you're just trying to like be as crazy as yeah, you can. It sounds amazing. Yeah. So you're, it's, you're, uh, you're just
1: continuing to add to the list of things that I need to hear. That's a, sh- so that didn't make it in. I, I think
2: it's on a i think it's uh it's out there uh as a, as a bonus track or something somewhere it's a shame because only about uh i think what is it 40 minutes of music got released and i think i wrote about three hours of music from that score oh, but of course God. you pl- you know you play the game it's all in there uh but the 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 soundtrack was only i think i forget now 10 tracks or something it's
1: but i have, have have they not done a retrospective kind of expanded edition or something i remember a few years ago there was kind of a a big box set of AC music that was multiple games all packaged together. Uh, yeah,
2: those were all the regular versions of the scores. I think that was what something else was putting out when they started putting out all the different. Um, right,
1: I see. Yeah,
2: yeah. Soundtrack releases.
1: Well, I remember. I remember on the second game, um, you know, when you when the first one came out was right at the around the time, somewhere around there was shortly after I had moved to LA. And so I was kind of learning the who's who in town. And of course, I was also a gamer. And I distinctly remember a couple of years later seeing photos of you and, uh, you know, I think a group of strings recording at Capitol uh, for the second one. And I remember at the time, that was one of the first times I had ever seen photos of a game recording at Capitol. And as history would reveal, it it was not a very long-lived window of time recording game scores in Los Angeles, what uh, what happened there in terms of you know coming in to do the sequel was it one of those just I guess to be expected all right how do we kind of raise the bar on what we did or, or walk through how you approached tackling the sequel differently?
2: Yeah, they were definitely wanted to uh, raise the bar on the second one, and uh, and we did a we did a a, a, a union session at uh, at Capitol, uh, which was amazing, um, and um, a. You know, I, I when I first saw footage from from Assassin's Creed 2, it was so it, it was so unusual. The team would show me these uh, lighting tests they have done, and I just immediately was like, "Whoa, this is so romantic!" And they were like, you know, showing me all of these romantic settings and with this mood lighting and at night and these festivals and. And I was thinking to myself, I would have to go. I need to go write a really atmospheric score uh, because this, 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 is this is what they're looking at as an inspiration for the for the game. So that was very much my my starting point. Um, and then of course, the, you know, the Renaissance as well, trying to figure out how to do some music there that um, they didn't want me to go and do anything that felt. Um, realistic to the time period they wanted me to be inspired by the renaissance but to bring it up to date with like a, a modern take or something um so this this became the the philosophy and then of course mixing it with with synthesizers and
1: was that, musical uh, sound
2: design and all that
1: was that established from the onset or did you have any early experiments on on blending in renaissancey kind of things
2: that was from the beginning. They wanted a, a Renaissance score, but um, updated to... Uh, I see. 2009, uh, whenever it was, standards.
1: Yeah, so there's no there's no garbage bin full of a bunch of like shams and old woodwinds and things like that. Uh, not, uh, not in this one. Yeah, uh, uh, that's... that's uh, The imagination uh, fantasizes all the same. Well, so obviously the, the big... The big thing to come out of that was Ezio's family, which, uh, you know, has has uh, has become the Jesper anthem. And uh, for composers, myself included, who have had the opportunity to dip our toes in the AC world since then, it's basically always the first conversation. OK, w- you know, what do you want me to do with Ezio's family? <laughs> uh, what? what? I'm, so, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> Are you kidding? uh, It it lives, it lives in my conscience forever, and I think it's hilarious that it's, you know, on on Syndicate, I wrote something in the neighborhood of uh, three and a half hours of score, and I think that my take on Ezio's family, which kind of blends it with the Syndicate theme, is far and away the most popular track from that score. So basically, I'm just riding your coattails uh and uh and happily dancing in your shadow that's a great take on that cue though well it was a lot of fun that whole score was it was actually funny because i said to them how much do i how much are you looking for me to kind of channel what uh exists prior particularly with what jesper did as the foundation for this whole franchise and they said, actually, we'd like to conscientiously be really different, except that we do want to have one big, strong homage somewhere. And they didn't know where. And it was like, well, what if it's the menu? Uh, and uh, so, you know, because it, it couldn't really find anywhere that it made sense in the game, particularly since Syndicate really heavily de-emphasized all the modern day animus stuff and, the, and it only showed up in a few cutscenes. and we also made the choice to not score any of those cutscenes. so 100 percent of the score was for the victorian era london stuff and so that it was like okay well where do we put in ncs families well the natural thought is either credits or the menu um and uh and so that gave me an excuse to kind of blend that palette in, in a way that would have not really made sense in the context of the score, just given the parameters that they were telling me to play with. So anyway, I I, I have, right. I have no, I have no, I have no experience of something like that. Hearing composer after composer do this rendition on my, on my tune. I mean, what has that experience been like for you over the years when at, at some point, obviously uh, Ubisoft started hiring sort of a, a succession of different composers on these games, but everybody had this task of, of tackling. Just walk me through what's been your reaction to that. Do you ever? Well, I'll just leave it open-ended. What has been your reaction to that?
2: Right. Um, I mean, I'm hugely honored that they're uh, that they're using this cue, and of course, it was written, you know, for Ezio, hence you know Ezio's family. Uh, but it it it's it's always Super interesting to hear these different takes on it. And, um, yeah, no, I'm honored Ubisoft is using it. It's it's great also to go on YouTube and see how many remixes the fans have made. Um, oh, yeah. and, and I, and I think I've realized by, you know, composing something like a, a, in a bit more simple way really leaves the music open for interpretation in so many ways. And that has really been something like, I was like, Whoa, um, um but, yeah, I mean, what, what can I say? It's, it's, it's been amazing um, to, to see the life it has had out, outside of uh, you know, Assassin's Creed 2. When I listen to it now, I think more about you know, the, the sacrifice of the assassins and, and what they have to go through and the, uh, how it affects their family and, and, and their friends, you know, you the, the secretive nature of, of being an assassin. So it's kind of transcended uh, you know, its original purpose.
1: Oh yeah, without a doubt. I remember a few months ago when the marketing was all revving up on Valhalla, which uh, obviously, for context, you know that was your that was your uh, triumphant return to Assassin's Creed after uh, you know the better part of a decade, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, first off, just what was that like returning to this old friend? Uh, but secondly, specifically taking on this old theme, you've obviously grown as a person considerably since writing it originally. Uh, You know, your family life is different. Your professional evolution has changed. What was it like returning to that piece particularly? Yeah, I mean –
2: it it was great fun to return to to valhalla uh and, and and the assassins creed universe um one thing i knew from the from the get go um when this started to take shape was that i didn't want to repeat myself i had yeah i wanted to do something new um and the valhalla um time period really lent itself well to that so it felt uh, it felt really good going back there um I hadn't really thought about even ever doing another version of Ezio's Family. I mean, I think I felt like I did three versions of it for the Assassin's Creed 2 soundtrack with Venice Rooftops and Earth being the other two. Um, So I really had no kind of reason to go back to it. Um, But it was great fun to to do. Uh, You know, it was one of the last cues I wrote for Valhalla and I I felt like once I had the, the full scope of what the soundtrack sounded like. And, uh, I could, it, it was, it was, uh, it was easier to go back and, and remix it. Had you asked me to, had I been asked to remix it from the get go, I would have been like, wait, what? Because, you know, you, you, it's, it's always, um, it, it can be a challenge to go back to those pieces, but it was the right time. I had, I had finished the score almost. And, uh, I knew what it what it all you know sounded like so it was great fun. I worked with um with uh, uh Anar, um yourself, uh, yeah Ana Selvik on that that was great. um he, he lent his he voice absolutely, to it he, he's absolutely and amazing he is, and he provided some poems for it as well, um which are in there it um yeah it, it was really a great experience
1: It is my understanding that you and Sarah worked uh pretty independently from one another. And so I'm curious what defined your role versus hers, how much that was established from the beginning, all, all of that.
2: Yeah, so we worked independently on the, on the score apart from the theme. Um, and we were assigned a lot of the same gameplay cues. So if there was like, uh, let's say there was two stealth cues that I would write, then Sarah would also write two stealth cues. And so they would have four stealth cues and that um, very much is how a lot of the gameplay music was was um, was created and um, As far as the regions um, uh, Within the game the regions I worked on were um, Norway Wessex Northumbria uh, East Anglia um, the present music and and wineland and also uh, Juttenheim, Um uh so we were assigned different areas. Um, how, how much music
1: would you say you ended up writing? That was about three hours of music. And, and I assume she did similarly. Plus, Einar wrote a bunch of in-world music, right? I mean, it sounds like there's got like seven plus hours of score in the game.
2: Yeah, I think, Sarah, I think we talked about it. We ended up writing about the same amount of music, three hours each. And... Um, uh, I think uh, Ina Selvig is probably about two hours, I'm guessing. So, so oh yeah, God. I wouldn't be surprised if it's about seven hours of music. I mean, it was a massive effort. Uh, just, I mean, the game is ginormous. I'm still playing it. I'm like 99 hours in, and oh I haven't, Lord. you know, and I'm not even going for all the, uh, the side missions, you know. I'm playing the main story, uh, and it is mind-boggling. What they have achieved with this game, I am uh, so excited to be part of it.
1: it, yeah, that's it's funny because I started playing it, and I've always been a f- fan. I mean, like I like we were talking a minute ago, even when the, when the first one came out, I just was instantly converted and and uh, I thought, you know, there' have been a lot of high points over the years on this franchise. There are a lot of really memorable uh, moments across almost every almost every one of them. I mean, it's just it's a it's a spectacular ip um but as my as as life goes on i find my palette for you know time like massively time consuming games has been getting uh strained and so every new ac comes out i'm always a little bit afraid of it but valhalla was just so seductive looking and so uh beautiful and and uh and i loved the the setting and, and i've started playing it and then once i realized how giant it was i i, I was like i think i better shut off the playstation or i might never be heard from again <laughs> yeah hearing you talk in terms of 99 hours it's like holy shit that's twice as bad as i realized right i
2: don't have time to play uh games that much either um but i definitely made it a mission in life to to complete this one so i'm i'm holding on to it and it is it's really stuck me in um and i love seeing how the music is been implemented and uh it, it's such a beautiful game as well i'm really um you know with, with they have the weather systems and the way the the you know the sun sets on the world and stuff it's it's really cool
1: well i uh, it, it is it is a truly there aren't a lot of uh, composers even among the very successful in this business who are so consistently celebrated for such an iconic contribution, but your attachment to that franchise is, is one of those, it, it would be like, you know, when inevitably there's a new, I mean, it's already happened a little bit, but in a new star Wars film without John Williams, there's some contingent of the audience who will just not be interested on that basis. And I know that that is the, the case with you and AC. I remember getting those messages of saying, you know, you know, with all due respect, like, I, I can't tell you how many tweets I read that re- were something along the lines of, "Look, Journey is cool, but with Syndicate, I mean, if it's not Yesper, I'm sorry, I'm just pass." Uh, and uh, and I oh, I, think I love I love that loyalty though because you really did manage to make something that uh, you know out outlives the games themselves. I mean, there's just so few times that that. Happens, and and the fact that you've been able to go back again and again and again, and, and keep finding new things, it's, it's genuinely inspiring. It makes all the rest of us realize, shit, we, we got to sit up and pay attention and actually work that much harder. Oh man, thanks for saying that, dude.
2: Yeah, the Assassin's Creed fans are really, uh, really something special. I must say, it's uh, it's been quite a journey.
1: Yeah, well, and and obviously before COVID, it's it's worth including. There was the. Assassin's Creed Symphony, which was starting to make the rounds around the world of you know fully orchestral uh, reimaginings of, of music from just about every game in the franchise, which means that about half that concert is your music, never mind the fact that the, all the vignettes into the other games still invariably includes that game's version of Ezio's family. So it's basically a Jesper tour uh, in which a few other composers make cameo appearances, I think. <laughs>
2: Ah, oh, dude! Oh, no, there's so many composers who've contributed to that franchise. Now it's really some some awesome music being written there.
1: Well, I I, uh, I certainly don't take for granted my own gratitude at at having been able to uh, to be a small part of it. But uh, I don't want to use up uh, endless amounts of your time. But uh, it, it obviously we didn't even touch on Borderlands, which is an equally gigantic uh, f- uh, part of the. The uh, industry, and you have a you know truly um, a huge contribution to that, and and on and on. I've actually, funny enough, recently been playing. Uh, uh, without saying too much, I'm working on a game that one of the developers said, you know, what might be interesting. Um, you should check out Vermintide Two, uh, and that might prove to be um, something that would be good to check out. And I started playing it, having no idea that you scored it. Uh, and then I was playing, I was like, Ooh, this is, this is cool. And then the first time this one particular thing happened in the game where, you know, basically this just giant flood of rats and horrible things would come charging at me. Uh, there was this very distinctive cue that consistently would trigger each time. And I remember thinking, I gotta look this up. And of course, you know, pull up Spotify and laugh like, Oh, of course, of course it is. Uh, and, uh, so I, I, I feel bad, uh, sort of glossing over the 40 other noteworthy titles. Uh, but as we wrap up here, I'm just curious, there aren't a lot of composers that have been in the business as long as you have, and you've really been able to witness, just even talking about the demo scene days and then the, the actual, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, the, the hardware synthesis era of this industry wherein music was being written directly to the chipset on which the game is also being rendered through to today and recording uh, live orchestras and and uh, uh, of course dusting off the old analog synths and going to orchestral concerts of this music you've you've been able to witness quite a lot but I'm curious just what is your take on how things have changed and and, and what is your what do you find yourself looking for forward towards if if that's not too vague of a question
2: right um i mean there's a few different ways to answer that i mean i can start by saying for me personally it hasn't changed that much in in that i still um you know get hired and, and look for projects that are creative where i get to do something new that i haven't done before that's still very much um my mission Um, as far as the industry, it's back when I started making music for games, it wasn't like a very desirable place to be, you know, people were uh, not looking at like game scoring as anything (laughs) very attractive. And now you have, uh, you know, film composers, bands, I mean, everybody is looking at games and it has such a Almost glamorous side to it now. That is, is I mean, it's, it's 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 of course it's not the Oscars. I get that, but it but it has grown so much uh, since the beginning. And um, from the days of, of of video gaming, very much being in Europe, it was very much in Britain that that the British game industry started this whole thing. Um, and of course, over uh, on the U.S. side, it was more about the consoles from Nintendo and Sega. Uh, But the whole thing has come together now into this vast, ginormously powerful, um, you know, thing that that outdoes music and film. It is unbelievable to think about. And now we have people going to the concert house, right? These beautiful, beautiful opera houses that, you know, very glamorous places. And they're playing video game music. Uh, It's it's wonderful.
1: Is there any... um as i imagine happens as i imagine happens uh, a lot of us get younger composers asking us for advice or or uh, tips and that sort of thing is there anything that you find yourself consistently suggesting the younger folks do
2: well i can only speak to my experience and what worked for me and um, what's worked for me is to always be true to myself and that does take you know, it, take, it takes work and it takes um, a certain kind of knowing yourselfness that you have to be aware of. And I'm sure you're fully aware of this because as composers, we spend so much time with ourselves, right? It's like when you're out and about in an office or something, you're spending time with co-workers. But we spend so much time alone that we have to... And, and, and so much is being asked of us all the time. You have to perform every day and if you go into the office and you're not feeling great you can kind of still you know get through it but you go to the studio you're not feeling great you're going to write some 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 you know you're going to make some people unhappy with some crappy music uh so there's so much pressure and and you have to really get to know yourself and and that's another thing Uh, i mean of course that comes with age and experience but i'm sure you can you can probably relate to this
1: you know? Oh yeah, of course. Absolutely. The fact that you have to kind of be on all the time is something I think a lot of folks don't realize when they're first getting started. Yeah. Uh, There, there, there aren't, um, like it is helpful that as freelancers often the lack of nine to five means that if you have a bad day, you can usually afford to, you know, chalk that day up to whatever was going on and, and, and toss it out and not be out of time, but not always, which means that yeah. you really have to have methods in place to ensure that you can stay on it, you know, and that you can actually deliver.
2: And, and that goes to, to one of my points as well, that you shouldn't be too hard on yourself because you're still, if you're a new composer, you're still learning. And it, it takes time to to learn how to not be so hard on yourself. I, I mean, i still write music that i don't like or that gets rejected uh, and you just have to be able to get over it very quickly and and don't sit and think about that you know whether you like the piece sit and think about oh how great you thought that piece was how how dare they right you cannot think about that's not a, a helpful way to to think or you you can't do the opposite and think this music is terrible how how can i ever you know make it I, I think what helped me coming out of the demo scene is that I just started making music because I loved it And I was like 13 and I'm like, I'm just gonna make music because I I can't not make music You know, I have the tools in front of me. I'm just gonna do it and my music was not very good for for a while That's for sure for years and I was just trying to learn but not being so hard on yourself and being okay with you know writing music that you know, you might have to re- redo or or just not being so hard on yourself I think is 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 some advice I'd like to give because, you know, with all this, these days, everything is so instant gratification, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, if you think you're going to be a, you want to be a composer, but that doesn't mean that you sit down and and write some great music right away. And if it doesn't sound great, then you're not meant to be a composer. This is not how it works. You know, you got to slow it down and you're going to, you're going to take a time. And if you really want to be a composer, you're gonna just keep composing until your
1: music gets to a point where you uh, feel it's it's good, you know. Too true. I can't improve on that. One last thing that occurred to me: what you mentioned a minute ago, and I and and you may you may not have an answer to this because I I know when I've been asked something similar, I, I typically don't. But I'm I'm curious anyway. Um, when you said that you know your career today in many ways reflects the way it did in the earliest days, and that it's still just about trying to find creatively compelling projects that you can hopefully, you know, add a stamp to in some way, shape or form. Is there a kind of game, whether it's a genre or just a a style of game or whatnot that you've never worked on that is kind of a bucket list item where you think, Oh, I've, I've always wanted to do X. You've done so many, it's hard for me to imagine, but I'm just curious if there's some little, you know, fantasy yes per score that we're still waiting for. (laughs) <laughs> uh there's actually
2: uh i am a uh huge fan of subnautica so i think i have never done an underwater score that <sighs> is something i have never done and i was thinking if i was ever to do an underwater score it would have to be something completely opposite of what you would expect an underwater score Score to be? I don't have the answer because I haven't done the research, but I'm just saying uh, I love those underwater games. I've been playing Aquanox, was another underwater game I played years ago. Um, those games, there's something um, I know you've done an underwater score.
1: Yeah, I was going to say I have I have a little uh, I have a little experience on this one, um, and uh, and it was it was amazing. Part part of what I loved about that experience on Abzu was that the the game. Was aware, it's, 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 and I should say, it's funny that you say how much you love underwater games because the joke was always every underwater level in games that are otherwise not underwater is always the least favorite. It's always the one that everyone goes, oh, God, like in a Mario game, the underwater level is always just the cursed, horrible. Everybody hates it. It's like escort missions <laughs> in shooters. They're just always, they're just always the worst. And so it's really funny to, to seek it out. But yeah, on, on Abzu, that was actually, that was part of the, the conceit from the team, was we're, we were all too aware and giant squid, they were all too aware that most people have a very fraught relationship with this whole concept. And so the idea was, can we make something that's really sort of flowing and beautiful and, and, and relaxing and, or, or when it's exciting, it's, it's exciting, but even in a meditative sort of way. And the, the goal of course, with the music was to try to find the same thing that, you know, it doesn't channel the intrinsic, scariness that a lot of people feel about the underwater there's like I've, I've spent a lot of time scuba diving for example and a lot of people assume it's very claustrophobic and for me it was always the opposite i said it felt it's the closest i imagine i'll ever feel to what it's like to fly it couldn't have been more opposite of claustrophobic right um but i i get i get why people go to that just the notion of being so dependent on your gear and looking at the world through those goggles and all the rest but Right. Well, that's good to know. That's not remotely an answer I was expecting. I love that you had such a specific uh, <laughs> take. So the next, when they make uh, when they make like the Jules Verne Assassin's Creed, uh, that's uh, you know the journey to the bottom of the ocean the version. That that'll you'll be you'll be right on deck. And if they if they offer it to me, I will say respectfully, I decline because there's only one composer who I think uh, can uh, can tackle this, and you know you know him already. Right, right. I
2: think they already went to Atlantis and Odyssey, right? But that's definitely... Oh, uh, you're
1: right. I never made it. It's funny. That was one of those that I played like probably 15 hours. And then I realized, oh my God, I think I've done 1% of the game. And <laughs> uh, and I had to move on with my life begrudgingly. You're like, don't tell me I've done one. Just keep me, keep uh, it hitting. It's true. That's <laughs> a good point. Well, my dear sir, thank you for uh, for doing this. And on your birthday, no less... Um, of course, you're welcome. It is an absolute pleasure. As I said, it, it is a it is a privilege as well, given your your status um, in this industry and all that you've done to kind of elevate the the art and craft of it. I think I think uh, for the fact that we can we can both marvel at the fact that you know concerts, orchestral concerts, or or never mind even orchestral, you know DJ sets and bands, video game music enjoys quite a lot of popular presence in the the mainstream audiences, and I think that your work is a big part of what has pushed it there and made people realize that this is not just the the beeps and boops of old. Of course, I think you and I would also be quick to defend the artistic integrity of that music too, but, right. uh, but you know what I mean. I, I think we all collectively com- uh, owe you a debt, and so it's wonderful to finally have you here on this show to – walk us through how you have you how you've built this empire (laughs) okay man well thank you so much it is my absolute pleasure and see you again soon hopefully in person
2: all right thanks dude thanks for having me
0: thank you for joining us for the game makers notebook For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.